As you're being seated, I want to invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And this morning we will be looking at verses 15 through 20. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. And uh, I want to thank Brian Burrell who preached the last couple of weeks um, and uh, appreciate him sharing the word with us. And this morning we're going to start a two-week series out of the Gospel of Matthew on a community of repentance and forgiveness, a community of repentance and forgiveness. And so I'm going to begin reading for us in Matthew chapter 18, uh, verse 15, and we'll read through to verse 20. This is God's word. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Amen. This is God's Word. Well, as we start this series in Matthew chapter 18, I want to provide a little bit of context. If you look at Matthew chapter 18 and the larger context, you'll see that Jesus teaches us here in this chapter that a healthy church is like a healthy family. So in the opening verses of this chapter, in verses 1 to 3, Jesus teaches us that those who are greatest in the kingdom of heaven will humble themselves and become like a child. And then he goes on in verses 5 through 9 to talk about the importance of the children in God's family being protected from spiritual danger. And then he goes a little further in the chapter in verses 10 through 14 to talk about how the children in God's family are loved and pursued by their Father in heaven. In fact, Jesus goes on to illustrate this point, the Father's love for the children, in verses 12 through 14. He then shares in these verses the parable of the lost sheep. Look there in chapter 18, verse 12. Jesus says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And so as we're we're working through the chapter, what we see here is that that God is our Father. This is the church. The church is a, a family. God is our Father. And those who trust in Christ are His children. And the Father loves and the Father protects and the Father pursues His children. And then Jesus teaches us in our text this morning, verse 15 through 20, that if God acts towards his children in this way, if God loves his children and protects his children and pursues his children, then we as members of the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, should relate to one another in a similar fashion. 
that as brothers and sisters in the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, if we see another brother and sister or sister in spiritual peril, we should love them, we should pursue them, we should seek to protect them. Think about it for a moment. If you're a parent, say you have four children, you're at a busy amusement park, there's people everywhere, and you lose one of your children. I mean, like, you really don't know in that moment where they are. You are seriously concerned. What do you think you would do? You would probably take an assessment of the situation. If you have four children, you might look to the oldest and say, hey, I want you to watch over the other children. Stay here just for a moment. And you would go and look for the child. Or maybe if you don't have one child that's oldest that could, that could do that, that's mature enough to watch the rest, you would look for someone else, someone that you could trust, maybe another parent. You'd say, could you watch my children just for a minute? And you would go and look for the other child. What you would not do is say, well, I guess they'll eventually find me, right? Hopefully you wouldn't do that. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The father loves his children and he pursues them. He goes after them. And in a similar fashion, as members of the family of God, as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see one of the children, one of our brothers, one of our sisters in spiritual peril, in spiritual danger, we are to go and we are to pursue them. When we go and when we pursue them, what we are truly after, what we're hoping for, is that they will repent, that they will come home, and that they will be forgiven and restored. This is what I want us to look at these next couple of weeks as we consider Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 18. A community of repentance and forgiveness. This week we're going to consider the theme of repentance, and next week we'll focus on the theme of forgiveness but as we consider the theme of repentance this morning, what I want us to see from our passage is that Jesus teaches us that a healthy church is willing to correct and a healthy Christian is willing to repent. A healthy church is willing to correct and a healthy Christian is willing to repent. Let's consider this first point. A healthy church is willing to correct. So in a healthy family, we know that there is loving discipline. And Jesus teaches us here that likewise, in a healthy church, which is the family of God, there is to be loving discipline. And in these verses, Jesus provides us with a process by which that discipline should take place. It's actually a three-step process. Notice the first step there in chapter 18, verse 15. In verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, initially here, notice the link between Jesus' teaching in verse 15 and Jesus' teaching in the parable of the lost sheep. They follow, uh, uh, this teaching here in verse 15 follows right after the parable, and there's a link between the two. So if you look at verse 12 in chapter 18, Jesus says, What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and, notice this, go in search of the one that went astray? And now in verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
So what Jesus is saying here, and we've made this point already, is that as the Father goes after the lost sheep, so we are to go after those who have sinned against us, or those who have sinned in such a way that they find themselves in spiritual peril. Notice also here in verse 15 that a a principle emerges right away in the passage. We see here that when correction is handled properly, Jesus teaches us that as few people as possible should be included in the process of correction. You notice that in the passage, don't you, there in verse 15? He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Jesus does not say, if your brother sins against you, go and tell your Sunday school class. He does not say, go and tell your community group. He does not say, go and private message your friends on Facebook. He does not say, go and discuss it with your friends hanging out in the church parking lot after the service. No, he doesn't say any of those things, does he? Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him his fault. And why? Because as we will see, the assumption all along in this process, as Jesus lays out this process of correction, the assumption is that the one who has sinned is a child of the Father. That the one who has sinned is a brother or a sister in Christ. And therefore, Jesus is concerned that they would be pursued in love and that they would be treated fairly. Another insight here we see in verse 15 So not only are we to go, not only are we to keep this private and as few people involved in the process as possible, but we also, as the church, are to be willing to enact this correction, to pursue this correction. Notice Jesus does not say here in this first step of discipline that the church leaders are to go, or that the elders are to go, or that the deacons are to go, or some official body in the church is to go. But rather the assumption is is that we, as members of the church, all of us, if we find ourselves in a situation in which there's a particular individual who's sinned against us, or sinned in such a way that they are in spiritual peril, we are to go to them and to address the issue. Now, this can be challenging, no doubt. It takes courage. In fact, it's much easier to talk to others about the matter or to expect others to handle the problem than to personally take responsibility and to go and to tell them. No doubt, in situations like that, at times it can be awkward, it can be hard. But we have to trust God that he will give us the courage and the words and the wisdom that we need in those moments. And then notice what Jesus says here. Before before I say that, I I think this is important to point out. The reason why it's important that each one of us as individuals be willing to do so is because in other places in the New Testament, the church is likened to a body, right? And if you're to have a healthy body, one of the things you need in a healthy body is you need a healthy immune system. You need healthy antibodies. And so what the scriptures teach us is that in the life of the church, one of the ways that the body stays healthy is that the individual members of the body act as an immune system. They act as antibodies in such a way that they are willing to address 
or they are willing, even if necessary, to resist certain viruses, certain sins that would attack the body and destroy it. And so each of us, as Jesus teaches us here, bears a responsibility in this matter. But notice that Jesus then goes on to say, as he talks about this fact that we should go, that we should go and keep it private, that we should all be willing to go in order to be engaged in this work to protect the larger body. Jesus says then that if you go and he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And here's the goal of the process all along, right? Is that in a situation in which one has sinned and we have gone after them, we pursue them, we want to gain them. And praise God that among true Christians, this is where so much of biblical correction is resolved and ended. Now, it can happen in a simple conversation. If you share with someone, you know, when you snapped at me yesterday, that really hurt me and I wanted to talk to you about that. Or when you allowed me to use your phone last week, I happened to see the websites that you've been visiting recently and I'm concerned about you and I want to talk to you about that. Or hey, I noticed that you've been getting closer and closer to that man at your workplace who's not your husband. And I was wondering, how's your marriage doing? Is everything okay? And so many times, by the grace of God, among true Christians, when a brother and sister have, or brothers or sisters have a conversation like that, the other will respond in humility, and if necessary, repent and be saved from spiritual peril. They will be gained. And Jesus is teaching us here that that kind of loving and courageous correction is necessary for a church to remain healthy. Now notice, that's the first step, but notice the second step. So what if, what if someone goes to a brother and, and addresses a specific situation like this, and they refuse to repent, then Jesus then provides a second step. Notice there in chapter 18, verse 16. Jesus says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the second step, the first step is to go individually. The second step now is to take two or three witnesses. And these witnesses should be individuals who are godly, who are wise. So in Galatians chapter 6 verse 1, as Paul gives the church instructions there on how to correct someone who is in sin, Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual... There it is. You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. So these individuals who serve as witnesses should be wise. They should be godly. They should be spiritual. They should be individuals who are not easily tricked by the deceit of someone who's seeking to justify their sin or hold on to their sin. Not always, but at this point in the process, oftentimes church leaders may get involved. And we understand that Jesus' instructions here, as he says that two or three witnesses should be brought along, is based in the Old Testament scriptures. So when Moses was giving the people of Israel instructions on how to handle judicial matters, Moses told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, 
A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Moses then goes on actually to give instructions on how a malicious witness should be handled. So if there's someone who's, who's falsely accusing another, how that should be handled and how that person should be punished. And so Jesus here is establishing based on the Old Testament scriptures that in the process of correction, there should be multiple witnesses and those witnesses should be trustworthy. They should be people of character that can be trusted. Notice as well, though, that this principle is reiterated that when correction is handled correctly, when correction is handled properly, as few people as possible are included in the process. Do you notice that? First of all, it begins with one person going and offering correction. And now we're at second stage, and it's three or four people that are involved in the correction. And again, why? Well, the assumption is this is a children, this is a child of God, this is a child of the Father, this is a brother or sister in the family of God, and they are to be handled with love and care, they are to be protected and treated fairly. If, in the second step of going to one and speaking to one about their sin and their rebellion, the sinner repents, then again, the brother has been gained. They should be forgiven, they should be restored, and in most cases, the matter does not need to go any further than the small group of folks that have been involved in the process. Now, there is a third step in the process. If the individual is not gained, then Jesus says in chapter 18, verse 17, there is a third step. Look there, Jesus says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, obviously, what Jesus is speaking of here in verse 17 is a very serious action. And we need to consider that if a church were to take such an action, how does a church know whether or not an offense rises to the level of which it should be told to the church. I think a helpful criteria that has been offered, and I think this is confirmed by other uh, passages of Scripture, is that in order for an offense to rise to the level in which a church would make that public to the larger body, an offense must be outward, it must be serious, and it must be unrepentant. Let me explain what I mean by each one of those words. Outward. It would not be fair to bring a public charge against someone for, say, example, having a jealousy in their heart, you know? I just really sense that you have jealousy in your heart. Well, well, that's not really fair to bring that charge against someone. Now, if there's obvious outward evidences of that so that they are openly slandering others or there's a consistent outburst of anger and maybe they slash someone's tires and they're unrepentant, then that's a different situation, right? But it wouldn't be fair to simply say, I sense jealousy in your heart, and so we're going to bring this to the church. It must be outward. It must be something that we can see and witness. The second criteria is that it's serious. I mean, let us say, my friends, and we, we reiterate this again and again here at Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, that we are all sinners. That we all sin and we struggle with sin at various levels. 
And in fact, a struggle with sin is evidence that we are a Christian, that the Spirit is at work within us and we're doing battle with our sin. And praise God that He does not discipline us for all our sins with the same severity. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, love covers a multitude of sins. And no doubt there are many offenses for which we are right to forgive and to simply cover them with love. So outward, serious, and then the third criteria would be unrepentant. And this is, this is perhaps one of the most important we're dealing with a situation here in which there is a clear violation of God's Word, in which a sinner has honestly and lovingly been confronted with the truth of God's Word, and yet they say, I don't care. I'm going my own way. They refuse to repent. And so what Jesus is speaking of here is not a witch hunt. It's not nitpicking one another. It's not, it's surely it's not just a disagreement among Christians. We see something differently. But rather, when we're calling for discipline in a situation like this that Jesus is speaking of here, it would be a situation in which the sin is outward, it's serious, and it's unrepentant. Jesus says in such a situation, we must tell it to the church. This gives the church the opportunity to pray and to pursue the sinner. Of course, this should be done with, with the members of the church, not a gathering as large as this where you have folks who are members and non-members, but it would be in a gathering where you only have the members of the church present. And then Jesus says that if they still will not repent, once it's been told to the church and once the church has prayed for them and once the church has pursued them, then Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. It's very clear in the context in which Jesus is speaking what Jesus meant by this. A Gentile or a tax collector at that time was synonymous with a non-believer, an unbeliever, a non-Christian, we would say today. And no doubt, this is, a, this is an action that would nev should never be taken lightly. So, for example, we see here in this passage that, that this is a decision not made by one person. It's not made by a pastor or an elder, or I would argue even a group of elders, it's not a decision made by uh, certain officials within the church. It's a decision that is made by the church as a whole. The church here, he says, tell it to the church. The church serves as the final court of appeal. And the church makes the final decision of whether or not this individual should be disfellowshipped from the body. We should understand, too, that when a church is called to take an action like this, we should understand the significance of what's taking place, what it means. Essentially what it means when a church says, okay, we are disfellowshipping you from the body. We, we, we are saying now that as best we can understand, you are a non-Christian. What a church is saying is, listen, given your disregard for God's word, given your open rebellion against Christ, we can no longer affirm your profession of faith in Jesus. You say that you are a follower of Jesus, but your life says something different. And we can no longer affirm that you are a follower of Jesus by allowing you to continue to be a member of this church. And no doubt that is serious. But listen, my friends, being a follower of Jesus is serious, right? 
Being a member of his church, a member of the church of the living God is serious. Church membership, we learn from the scriptures, should not be like membership in a country club or a civic organization. You shouldn't remain a member of a church just because you've signed a card or paid your dues or even attended certain services. When one identifies as a Christian and one identifies with a church, essentially what they're saying is, I am a follower, I am a disciple of Jesus. I trust in his sacrificial death on the cross for the forgiveness of my sins. And I repent of my sins and turn from my sins and yield to him as my Lord and my master. And what Jesus is saying here And what is reiterated throughout the rest of the New Testament is that when our lives cease to be characterized by that kind of repentance and faith, then our lives cease to resemble in any meaningful sense what it means to be a Christian. And we need in those moments the loving, faithful correction and discipline of the church. You know, it's one of the reasons, there are many reasons I could give why it's important to be a member of a local church. But this is one of the reasons why it's so important to be a member of a local church. Because listen, and I'm serious, listen to this. When you give yourself over to sin, who's going to come after you? You should be concerned about that. I should be concerned about that. When we find ourselves wandering, when we find ourselves straying, when we find ourselves going our own way, who is going to come after us? And you say, oh, well, that's not me. You don't have to worry about me. I've been a Christian for a long time. I'm really strong in my faith. Oh, my friend. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was on a cohort with eight or ten pastors from the Sojourn Network, and we were learning things together and encouraging one another and talking about ministry opportunities within the network. But one of the things that we did in the two or three days that we were together, and we didn't plan to do this, but it just kind of naturally happened, is we lamented together how many friends we've had in the ministry over the years who are no longer in the ministry. Whether it's because of sexual immorality whether it's because of an abuse of power, whatever it might be, and these are guys that you would think, never, never, never. Oh, my friends, if you think you are, you are strong, if you think you are standing firm, be careful lest you fall. None of us is beyond falling, and every one of us needs the loving and faithful accountability of the church. This is the three-step process that Jesus lays out. The first step is to go. The second step is to take two or three witnesses. The third step, if there's still a refusal to repent of open, blatant sin, then you are to tell it to the church. And notice that as the church takes this action, notice the authority that Christ has granted to the church to faithfully enact discipline. We find this in verses 18 to 20. Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, these verses are often quoted out of context. But as we've been reading through Matthew chapter 18, it is clear that Jesus spoke these words in the context of a church enacting discipline. And what Jesus says here is that when two or three of you are gathered, so the idea here is whether it's a small church, whether it's a large church, whether it's in a big building, or whether you're in a hut in some village, when the people of God, the church of God is gathered together and they faithfully exercise discipline consistent with Jesus' words, the Father hears and He acts and they receive his blessing and accommodation. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed. Now that is powerful. Well, I don't believe what Jesus is saying here is that the church has the authority or the power to make someone a Christian or to make someone not a Christian. But rather what Jesus is indicating here is that the church has the authority to make judgments, to make verdicts on what is a real profession and what is a false profession. Who is a true disciple and who is an imposter. Jonathan Lehman on his little book entitled Church Discipline has a really helpful illustration here. He used the illustration of embassies and kingdoms. So as as Christians, we know from the scriptures that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. And kingdoms or nations have embassies. Embassies are located in foreign nations. And you know what the embassy is? An embassy is representative. It's an outpost of the kingdom or nation that they belong to. And so the church is a part of the kingdom of God. The church is the representation, the outpost of the kingdom of God in this foreign land, in this world that is set and opposed against God. And if you are a citizen of a certain nation and you find yourself in a foreign land and say you've lost your passport, well, what do you do? You have to go to the embassy, right? You have to go to the embassy to get verification that you are a citizen of the kingdom that you claim to be a citizen of. And the embassy has an authority to grant that citizenship or to verify that citizenship, I should say. The embassy has an authority to verify that citizenship that you don't have, that you don't possess by yourself. And so the church is an embassy of the kingdom in this world and has been given the authority and the responsibility to issue verdicts and decisions to say, as best we, and we aren't infallible, but as best we can discern, given God's word and what he's told us a Christian is to be, you are a Christian or you are not a Christian. You are a member of the kingdom or not a member. You are a child or you are not a child. And when the church gathers and makes these kinds of decisions, when the church welcomes members into the church saying, yes, we believe by your profession that you're a disciple of Jesus. When the church hands a Christian over to another church body and says, we entrust them to your care. When a church gathers together and says, we can no longer affirm this individual's profession of faith in Christ because their lives are so contrary and divorced from what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus says, when those things are happening among God's people, and God's people are doing those things faithfully and consistent with God's word, Christ is present among us. 
And the Father gives His endorsement as we exercise the authority that Christ has given to us. It's a powerful thing. You know, I hadn't planned for this to be the case. I really hadn't. But tonight we have a members meeting scheduled. You think it's important to be there? (laughs) Yes, it is. Because when we gather together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and we receive members into our body, or in unfortunate situations where we might remove members from our body, we are exercising the authority that Jesus has granted to us, his children. You know, in the past 15 years that I've been the pastor of First Berea Baptist Church and now Crawford Avenue Baptist Church, there have been a number of times, thankfully not many, but a number of times, where we have had to follow through on this full process of discipline and take this action to remove somebody from our church. Usually the person then will receive a letter from the church explaining our action that they're no longer a member of our church. One of the things I regularly seek to convey in that letter that we send out is that the action that we have taken as a church is much more than a clerical matter. It's not just, you know, erasing somebody's name from a membership role. It's not just like altering or or adjusting the roster on a basketball team but rather something profoundly spiritual has taken place. As the church has exercised the authority that Jesus has granted it to say we can no longer give approval to your profession of faith to be a follower of Jesus. And as that letter goes forth and as the church takes that action, all along the goal is what? It is to gain them. Even in the final action, the goal is to say, we hope that by the severity of this action, you will be awakened to the seriousness of your sin and you will repent and come home to the family. A healthy church is willing to correct. Secondly, though, and we won't spend nearly as much time on this point, a healthy Christian is willing to repent. A healthy church is willing to correct. And a healthy Christian is willing to repent. There in uh, chapter 18, verse 15, we read these words. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, here it is, you have gained your brother. So we've said all along that the goal of the process of discipline is to gain the one who has been lost. And what does it mean to gain? What does it mean to gain a brother or a sister? It means that they come to a point in which they repent, they turn from their sins, and they are forgiven. Now, Brian had preached on repentance the last couple of weeks, if you were able to be here. And Brian gave the definition, it's a good definition of repentance, that repentance means to turn from anything that hinders full-hearted devotion to Jesus. Repentance means to turn from anything that hinders full-hearted devotion to Jesus. And you know, the word repent literally means, actually the word literally means to turn. 
Uh, us being so closely located to Fort Gordon, I know that we have many former and current soldiers. And if you're a soldier, you've heard the command about face. What does about face mean? About face means to turn. You're going in one direction and you turn in 180 degrees and you go in the other direction. That's what it means to repent. It means I'm going in my direction, I'm going my way, and I hear the command of the Lord Jesus Christ, repent, repent, turn from your sins, and I do an about face, 180 degrees, I set my eyes on Jesus, and I go in his way. In fact, in the immediate context here, Jesus unpacks for us more clearly what he has in mind. So look in chapter 18, same chapter, just a few verses earlier, verses 8 through 9. Jesus says there, And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hellfire. This is a serious matter, right? Jesus is calling us to repent. And of course, the idea here is not that you should literally pluck your eye out. If you pluck your eye out because you you have the sin of lust, you will simply lust with your other eye. If you pluck that eye out, you have no eyes. You will lust with your mind. Jesus is obviously here using hyperbole, but the idea is that you would take radical, decisive action in opposition against your sin. Depending upon the nature of your sin, it doesn't mean that you'll have immediate victory, that you'll never struggle with that sin again. We don't ever want to communicate that. But it has everything to do with the attitude and the disposition of your heart towards your sin. Have you coddled it? Are you following it? Is it now your Lord and Master? Or have you set yourself in opposition against it and yielded to the Lordship of Christ? Are you willing to take whatever action is necessary to follow Jesus, whether that means to deny yourself or to be inconvenienced or to suffer financial loss or to lose friendships, to do whatever it takes to declare war on your sin, and to follow Jesus. It is through repentance that we experience the grace and the power of Christ in our lives. And listen, my friends, this is good news. God really does use His people to awaken repentance in the lives of those who possess His Spirit. Jesus gives us this process here. He gives us the church and enfolds us into a family because Jesus really intends to use His people to awaken repentance in the lives of those who possess His Spirit. I could give you many illustrations. One that came to my mind this last week as I was preparing this sermon was a couple that years ago had attended our church and after they had attended our church for a little while their marriage was falling apart the husband had committed adultery and I remember when the wife came to me she was obviously devastated and broken hearted about 
regarding what she had discovered. And in that moment, as I met with her and the elders became involved as well, in that moment, we could have been tempted to comfort her and to ignore the sinner. That would have been the easy thing to do, right? Comfort her and ignore or overlook the sinner. But we were persuaded that we could not choose between the two. But given the testimony and the teaching of the Lord Jesus, we were responsible to do both. And so as best we knew how, we sought to comfort her and sought to confront the sinner. Actually, one of our other elders was closer to the man who had committed the adultery. And so we went and we talked to him. And as we talked to him, by God's grace, he was broken by his sin. He confessed his sin to his wife, and we, in the weeks to come, in the days and weeks to come, presented them with a process of reconciliation, and by the grace of God, they were reconciled. They no longer attend this church. Actually, they've moved away, and they're involved in another local body. And as best I know, they are still married today. And listen, once that happened, once we addressed him and talked about the matter, and he repented, and they reconciled, no one else in the church knew that it had ever taken place. Only him, his wife, and the elders. No one else, unless they told somebody, and I don't know that they told anybody else, And why did no one else know? Because we had achieved what was always intended. He had been gained. And that was all that was necessary. He repented and there was reconciliation. Listen, my friends, I could give many, many, many other examples by the grace of God, but this is what I want to convey to you. God really does intend to use his people to awaken repentance in the lives of those who possess his spirit. And when we refuse to go, we miss out on the opportunity to gain them. Going is hard, but it's only by going that we gain them. We see here in our text that a healthy church is willing to correct. And a healthy Christian is willing to repent. My friends, as we have looked at this passage this morning, my prayer is that we will always be a community of repenters. As we seek to love one another, as we seek to care for one another, as we seek to pursue one another in love, we can pray that the words of the Apostle James would be true of us. In James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20, we read these words. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. By God's grace, may we be such a healthy family, such a healthy church body, through loving accountability and correction, we protect one another's spiritual well-being for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. 
Lord, we thank you for how you care for us by placing us in a family of believers. And Lord, we pray that we would appreciate that and that we would take full advantage of it. Father, I pray for us this morning, as this is a challenging message, I know. Lord, I pray for some of us here this morning who, even in hearing this message, are aware that there's sins we need to repent of. There's sins maybe that we've been, we've been coddling, we've been excusing, we've been justifying. Father, I pray that even now in these moments that by your spirit you would work and by your word there would be a decisive action taking place. And Lord, that we would repent. We would turn. Help us by the power of your spirit to know that on the other side of repentance is life, is joy, is forgiveness. And Lord, may we turn into the arms of Jesus. And Father, I pray for those who are here this morning that perhaps there's a broken relationship. Or maybe there's someone that we know and we see the path that they're going and we know that it's going to end in destruction and yet we haven't said anything. Either because we've been too fearful or maybe we've just had an ungodly indifference. God, we pray that you would forgive us. And Father, we pray that you would give us the courage to go after them with love and with grace. Father, we pray that as a church body, that you would work in us and that we would see many, many, many restored, many redeemed, many saved, many gained as we faithfully seek to honor your word as we faithfully seek to care for one another. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.